Thank you, dear Lord, for your goodness and kindness and mercy. Thank you that we have an accurate and errant historical account of what you've done in history and how the gospel was spread. May we learn things that apply to us so that we get the gospel right and that we're bold with it. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, this morning we're going to continue the narrative that we were looking at last week, which was Acts 14, and there was a lame man who was healed. Last week, just for review, we showed that there is scripture being fulfilled and um, a reiteration of something God had done earlier in Acts, and there's reasons why Luke tells us what he does. Early in Luke, it was said that the lame would be healed. We look back in Isaiah, was that 35, Eric? Yes, 35, I, Isaiah 35, 5, we saw a prediction of the lame being healed. We looked in early in Acts in Peter's ministry, someone lame from his mother's womb, which shows that this is a creative miracle, okay, because the person would have had no muscles or balance or anything else and to leap and run around is total miracle. So that happened under Peter's ministry. Now it happens again in Acts 14 with Paul and Barnabas to show continuity from John the Baptist's announcement of what would happen when Messiah came, I believe in Luke 7, to Peter, to Paul. The messianic message is going forth. The signs that accompany these things are proof that Christ and his apostles are the ones who speak for God. And we've covered many times the fact that anybody today who claims they're such an apostle, they're false. Because they weren't, they haven't seen the resurrected Christ in the flesh, and they weren't taught by Christ, and they weren't appointed by Christ. So they're false. And we've covered that. But these are the real apostles. And here they are um, attested to by a work of God. Now, verses 13 to 15, we're going to talk about the pagan worshipers here of false gods who interpret Paul and Barnabas as being incarnated polytheistic deities. That's what they think is going on. But that's exactly what's not going on because Paul is going to say, no, we're preaching a true God and the message is to turn from these vain things. Turn from polytheism to Trinitarian monotheism of the Bible. So let's read verses 13 through 15 of Acts chapter 14. The priest of Zeus whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. Now remember, they wanted to sacrifice to these men. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these main things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So there is a lot of theology in this little section. And I am going to teach theology to you today. We're, we're going to learn. And that's very important. So this priest of Zeus, priest is a, uh, from the word hierus, and it was used in Luke for Jewish priests. And um, this would be a pagan priest. And they were mediating religion to the people in this case, the followers of the pagan deity. So they had their priests. And 
the, the New Testament, by the way, teaches the high priesthood of Christ alone and the priesthood of every believer. So we don't have a priesthood uh, other than the priesthood of every believer. So if anyone today is claiming to be some special kind of priest that would not apply to every Christian, they're false. They claim to be doing something for God that only God does himself through Christ, which is bring his forgiveness of sins and communion with God and everything to every single believer. There's no intermediary between us and God besides the high priest Christ Jesus, the man Christ Jesus, whoever lives to make intercession for us. So that means, if you didn't get my implication, the entire Roman Catholic Church is a pagan institution with a false priesthood that abuses millions and millions and millions of people every single day all around the world and keeps them from coming to the true God through Jesus Christ uh, in faith. It's why aren't more people pointing that out? I don't know. But we have our own pagan priesthood and we have our own in America, which is the Roman Catholic priesthood, and our own false deities like Mary. Not the Mary of the Bible, but the Mary of Rome is a false goddess. Okay, and so they have the same kind of paganism going on. And I see it every single day in St. Louis Park when I go by the Catholic Church. They're always coming and going, coming and going. All these poor, they don't know any better. Well, let's just go here. This is where God's going to meet us. You need to know better. It's just as pagan as this stuff. So don't believe it. So the priest, by the way, Herius, um, there's, there's some words that I was looking up as I was looking at this. And uh, I learned them in seminary, and it's amazing how few times they get used. There's a word called hierophant. Have you ever heard that? Yeah, right. Yeah, uh, hierophant is from this word hierius, priest, and it would be like a cult leader that everybody has to obey or do uh, obedience to in, in, in the sense of religious activities. And they're seen as a hierarchy. That's where I got a word. A word. There's this hierarchy, the hierophant, and uh, nobody dares cross such a person in, in such a pagan religion. That's the kind of people these were. Now, there's another word, and I looked up the etymology today, because I heard that in seminary too, that sycophant, and you hear that sometimes in political debate, they'll say the followers of a certain party are, are sycophants, like dummies that just do whatever they're told. Now that word is, in the etymology, wasn't really the opposite of hierophant. That, that came into later usage, and it's not that common, but I heard it in seminary. The, the sycophant comes the word for, from the word for fig, but it had to do with somebody who was a follower, uh, like in a cult who just blindly does whatever they're told to do. And so I remember Dr. Travis talking about hierophants and sycophants. Well, really, that's, that's Rome. The hierophants, the sycophants. And somebody said, why are you so hard on the, the Roman Catholics? I said, I'm hard on, I am pointing out the abuse of this wicked pagan system. The local person who just goes has zero authority. They didn't create that church. They just support it because they're told that's what they have to do. They can't change a thing. They can't get anybody to change anything. They either go along with it or they're told they're cursed. And somebody needs to stand up for those abused people and show them they can get out, they can come to Christ, and when Christ forgives your sins, not the Pope, not the Archbishop, not the Cardinal, not the local priest, not one of them has any power to put you back in your sin when Christ says you're forgiven. 
And if you don't give them a penny, and if you don't build their cathedrals, and you don't kneel and bow and say what they tell you to say, you're still right with God. Because the gospel is free, it's liberating, and God gives us rest. Jesus said, come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest to your souls. The false religions say, work, 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 serve, 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 give, give, give. And when it's all done, you still haven't made it to heaven. It's so offensive. And I won't stop speaking out against it as long as I'm alive and I have breath and I can speak. So the priests of Zeus, their version of pagan Rome, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen, garlands to the gates, wanted to offer sacrifices. See, they wanted to make sure they covered all their bases. There may be some god they'd forgotten, like in Athens, the unknown god. There may be uh, these are the ones that showed up here and they're going to do us some good thing. And notice that it says when they heard this, they tore their robes. Now, tearing the robes is found elsewhere in the Bible. And it was a sign of being uh, either in great grief and distress or some sort of moral outrage. Like you tear your robes. So you, you know, by the way, back in those days, you just couldn't go down to Kohl's and get a new robe for cheap. <laughs> 20% off. And you get Kohl's dollars. No, I mean, clothing was a valuable commodity. Very, very valuable. And to tear it means this is really bad. All right? And so we see that sort of thing happening when somebody wants to publicly display their, their grief or their outrage or their mourning. Now, their response of tearing the robes is the opposite of one we saw earlier in Acts when someone else uh, received the accolades of would-be followers and uh, Norm, could you look up Acts twelve twenty-one through 23 and read that to us? And Eric, while Norm's doing that, could you look up Matthew 26, 63 through 65? Okay, Acts 21, Acts 12, 21. Hold on, we got the mic coming. <laughs> we got somebody not as quick on his feet this time. <laughs> Filling in. We got to fill in. Thank you, Rich. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Acts twelve twenty one. And on the approved day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took and sent on the sat, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an ad- address to them. And the people kept crying out, "The voice of a god and not of a man." And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and died. Not good for Herod. Not good. No, not good for Herod. The voice of a God and not a man, and he, he was, he, oh, great, this is, these are voters. Well, they didn't vote back then. And so he has his own mic. Okay, so let's talk about the robe, Terry. So the opposite response of receiving the accolades found in Matthew 26, 63 to 65. And here the tearing of the robes was done because somebody rejected Christ. Wow. Look at this. Verse 63, it says, But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said, Whoops, sorry, I lost my place. You have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God, or right hand of power, and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. Yeah, heard it. Uh, we have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Now, Eric, explain to us why this particular high priest thought that Jesus blasphemed by saying that uh, the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming on the clouds. T- 
tie the blasphemy claim to what Jesus claimed and explained it to us. Yeah, you know, the, the son of man designation, that's the favorite self-designation that Jesus gives himself. So he refers to himself as the son of man more than any other term. Now, you and I would think, well, wait a minute, why doesn't he use Messiah? Why doesn't he use the son of God? The son of man is actually a term of dignity. It stems from Daniel chapter 7 in the prophecy where you see all the nations are put down, but there's one like a son of man. He's the Messiah, and all authority and all kingdoms are given to him. So by Jesus declaring that he's the son of man, he's declaring that he is the one who sits at the right hand of God. He's the one who's going to rule. He's the Messiah, and they know that that's an implicit claim that, in fact, he's God. And so that's why they're calling it blasphemy. I've heard some others try to claim that the Son of Man is a reference to Ezekiel, where Ezekiel's called the Son of Man. That's not true. Jesus uses it to link himself to Daniel chapter 7. He's the one who is God who's going to reign. Right. And And the reason the high priest who didn't believe in Jesus called it blasphemy, because he knew the claim. He said, no, they, were, they needed two or three witnesses to convict somebody. The guy, they, he said, we don't need that now. He just confessed. What did he confess? His own deity. That he's the one prophesied of in Daniel 7. He's the one who sits in the greatest place of authority and power, the right hand where he's going to ascend. Um, and so the tearing of the robe there was outrage and disgust. Only it was based on unbelief. But it was a, a Jewish way of saying, this is horrible, so they tear the robes. Uh, uh, Eric, oh, yeah. God bless you. Yeah, yeah. and, um, you know, people, you run into people that will say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Or he just did. So this is important to remember. Jesus did claim to be God. It's just that in Matthew, he used Hebraic terminology. And we, we need to understand that because we'll run into people who will claim Jesus never claimed to be God, and he did. Right, exactly. Amen. So Jesus claimed to be God and was accused of blasphemy, but his claim was true. The apostles do not have the eternal nature of deity. It's my statement, as Jesus always has and always will. So the apostles were, were different. Now, Jesus is fully human and fully God, but the apostles are humans. So the apostles are the apostles of Christ but notice they said we are of the same nature as you Jesus has human nature but he's also God that's the incarnation it's called the hypostatic union in theology in that uh, that uh, sentence we are also men of the same nature as you would you say, Bob, that some of that goes back to the roots of pagan worship in the sense that uh, there were other pre, pre-flood, and that's where a lot of this stuff started, that they, they were like man. They appeared like man, and, and these people received worship. So why would, the, why would they have to make the statement of that we're of the same nature as you. They, they could have worded it a different way, but they didn't. Right, because the, I think there is a, 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 the whole flood narrative yeah. with the angels, uh, fallen angels coming down and interacting with humans. Genesis 6, Genesis, what is it? Genesis 6, 1 through 4. Um, that's still in the memory of all the pagans because they had stories of the same thing. Okay, but God sent the flood because of that. But yet the pagan flood stories also talk about this. And so they thought that that sort of thing happens. But these beings, whatever their ontological status, uh, these beings are fallen. And they don't have the nature of deity. And that's what this next point is going to, Paul's going to point out. So there's a lot of really important theology in here. So Paul was teaching theology to pagans. 
Yes, that's very important. The seeker movement says, no, you can't do that. You got to let the pagans decide what your message is going to be. And you go out and survey them and see what they think, and then you do things that would seem good to them. But as a matter of fact, Paul taught theology to people who needed to hear it because they had false beliefs. And so what is the nature of God is a key issue. And he's going to teach the same thing in Athens in Acts 17. Okay, so yeah, there was that event back in Genesis that was still in the minds of people all millennia later. The interesting thing is, is that people today, they don't believe that. They don't believe that there was anything like that. But the people living at that time, they all knew that. Yeah, even the pagans knew it. Absolutely. And then uh, the the prevailing worldview today is panentheism. I've been writing about that a lot. That God is somehow infused into everything. So then everybody and everything, including nature, is somehow connected to God in a pantheistic or panentheistic way. So it's a little bit different than the polytheism of these pagans. All right. So we need to correct that. Yes, here. Hey, Bob, just for the sake of people who are maybe new here, what Bob is talking about is in Genesis 6, if you think about angels, God creates angels. Well, then you have a portion of the angels that fall. And of the portion, so that's a third according to Revelation chapter 12. So of those third of the angels that followed Satan rather than God, a portion of them according to Genesis 6, impregnated women, and they are now currently locked away in the abyss. Right. But this is what Bob is pointing out, that they came down, more than likely it was out Mount Hermon. And so all of the pagan cultures throughout the world, think about how many here have ever heard of the Titans? You see, the Greeks had their view that, yes, these angels came down, these gods, and the impregnated women, and they have little... God men then, I don't mean little, but they're like gods that came down, but they claimed it happened at Mount Olympus. Okay, so that's what Bob's talking about. So to these pagans, they really think that you can have deified humans, as it were. And so Paul is setting them straight, saying, no, there's one God. Right. Don't be confused. Right. All, all of that whole thing was wiped out by the flood. By the flood. Yes. And the angels, the fallen angels that did that were locked in the abyss. And they don't get out again until during the tribulation period. And God will let them loose, and it's really bad. Believe on Christ now and be ready for the rapture. You don't want to be around when that happens. Now, I wanted to give you some material from one of the scholar, scholars that I referenced to help me make sure I'm well prepared to teach, Dr. Schnabel. Schnabel, his commentary is great. I just I got it on Logos about four months ago, but that was well spent money. Zeus and Hermes. Okay, so they're thinking this is Zeus and Hermes, right? One is the speaker and whatever. So here is what that was all about in the pagan world. Zeus is the sky father, the highest god, the gatherer of clouds, who sends rain and thunder and lightning, the strongest of the gods and thus connected with bull sacrifice, says Schnabel, the god who gives victory, by the way, they had a god of victory. You know the name of the god of victory? Nike. That's where that name for the tennis shoes comes from, the Greek god of victory, Nike. So um, just for your information, did you see this morning on Fox and Friends? There are some Nikes that people put Catholic holy water into the shoes and a crucifix on the, on the, on the laces, and they're selling them for thousands of dollars. Paganism everywhere. Okay, so the father of men and gods. So here's this, what they thought about Zeus. The father of men and gods, his domain is the Agora, where he presides over the dealings of the community. He's supposedly the savior, the ruler of all rulers, the god of the universe, and worshipped in large temples. That's Zeus. Hermes, according to Schnabel, is described as the god who governs speech. The Jewish author Artapanus 
in his novel about Moses, identified Moses with Hermes as he describes Moses with traits reminiscent of the founder of civilization who brought technical and scientific inventions as well as the mysteries of the divine revelation. By the way, there were many Jewish occultists back in history. Okay, the Kabbalah is Jew- Jewish occultism. Then, according to Schnabel, Hermes appears in the Greek epics as son of Zeus, as the swift messenger sent by Zeus as the emissary. (coughs) I won't read any more of that, but just to show that, again, Luke, as we see, is technically accurate about what they believed, what the details of what they believed were, where they practiced it, the places. And so if you ever hear from anyone that the Bible is just made up, they're lying to you. Luke is amazingly accurate down to the sort of uh, provinces that Rome had and, and, and senatorial and imperial provinces, the names of rulers, the type of religions they had, the type of places where they gathered the ideas that they had. Here's Acker, right down to details. This isn't fiction. This is cold, sober history. And we have it to study 2,000 years later. The tearing of the robes, historic idea. Man, why are you doing these things? We're of the same nature as you. Christians and non-Christians are all humans created in the image of God. The difference is those who are born of God have the Holy Spirit, have eternal hope, and have forgiveness of sins. And we're children of God. That's true. We don't teach a universal fatherhood of God because for God, you need Christ as Savior to have God as Father in the way that brings eternal salvation. We also are men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Now there is a key point. If you want to know why I do this, well, I preach the gospel and Eric does too. We tell you who Christ is, what he did, why we need him, what he expects of us, and what are his promises. Okay? And so the world doesn't believe in the transcendent, non-contingent creator. I say that so much it almost seems redundant, but I won't quit saying it as long as the whole pagan society doesn't believe it. When we do radio, we talk about that the nature of God because the world we live in is characterized by panentheism. God is in everything. That denies his transcendence. That denies his non-contingence. What do I mean by non-contingent? God is what God believes, says, does, knows is not contingent on his own creation. In in, in theology, it's called a seity. He is ultimately, totally self-sufficient. The triune God of the Bible existed from all eternity when there was no creation. We know the creation is finite and dying, but just through science, entropy. It's all winding down. It's going to die of heat death, but it won't get that far because God's going to intervene and burn it all up. And we need to say that because people say, oh, yeah, I believe in God. Oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, God and Jesus, it's all good. But they're thinking of something different. And they'll go along with being religious or even being Christian unless you explain to them what you believe and why and distinctiveness of the Christian gospel. And then the resistant come. Oh, no, you go too far. Are you saying that Jesus Christ is unique and the only way to be saved and go to heaven is to come to Christ? Yes. Eric, doesn't that happen? 
out on the, when you're preaching the gospel, evangelizing? Uh, Eric, uh, could you go turn off the fan in here? Yeah. I know the evangelists talk about how people start resisting the true gospel when they hear it. And they find, they no, find I think all kinds of reasons to not believe. You know, they, you see, if it doesn't make sense to people intuitively, they reject it. And right. as you were talking just now, I have to confess, I was reading something that, but it was on point. It was on point. Oh, ah, good. And actually, I was thinking of raising my hand, and I was thinking of in Hebrews, I think it's Hebrews 11, by faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Right. See, man can't, we can't fathom that, you know. If it doesn't make sense to us, we rebel against that. Yeah, God created the entire universe out of nothing. Exactly. Now, how do we use that in apologetics? Here is a simple, logical statement. Either something eternal exists, or something non-eternal came forth out of nothing. Yeah, which is impossible. Right. And I've debated with, really, with atheists and uh, very intelligent people, and they realize that, that that's a problem. They know the universe isn't eternal, but if there isn't an eternal non-contingent creator, there's no way to explain why there's a universe. Because if the universe was eternally old, it can't be that because it would have died already of heat death. And it, would, it wouldn't be here. It would be nothing. It would be just death. They know that. I've talked to people, even recently. They ask them, well, what do the very brilliant science people do about death? Because they know it's true, even though they're not Christian. And he said, they just become nihilists. Um, uh, what's a good definition of nihilism? Just... I think it's the belief that everything is absurd and you just have to accept that. Yeah. Nothing has meaning. Life is absurd and hopeless. Just accept that. I think that's nihilism. That's very, the really brilliant people become nihilists if they don't become Christians. The people who don't think as deeply just go with panentheism. God is in everything. Okay, so we preach the gospel. To whom do we preach the gospel? Everyone. Do we change the gospel? No. Uh, if you look at Luke Acts, you see continuity, not discontinuity. From the beginning of Luke to the end of Acts, you have the idea of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Notice we preach the gospel to you that, here's one of the aspects of that gospel preaching, you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Notice the living God is in contrast to the mythological pantheon of the pagans. Turn is a synonym for repent. You need to know that. There's false teachers out there who say repentance has no place in gospel preaching. They say repentance was only for the Jews, but Paul has a different gospel that has no repentance. But they obviously, and I point this out, and I've even debated, they just don't want to hear it. They ignore the idea that turn is a synonym. And uh, turn, epistrepho, means that you're going one way and you change and now you're going the opposite way. Turn from pagan religion, unbelief, polytheism, atheism, panentheism, whatever it was, to a living God who created the heavens and the earth. So if you don't have the God who is the ultimate non-contingent creator, created the whole world out of nothing, you haven't turned to anything but something else that's futile. One futility to another. So you're a party person, living in sin, 
frat parties, whatever life is like. And then you decide to go to a church because you got married and you got kids, so the kids should get raised in church. So you find some nondescript church and you go there and you have the same pagan ideas, they're just religious now. You haven't turned. You just became religious. The only way you really turn is to go from anything that doesn't have the transcendent God with a linear view of history, creation to judgment. History is heading toward judgment, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus Christ, who came into this world, was born of a virgin who lived a sinless life, the true Christ, the transcendent Christ, who is the creator, as Eric saw in Hebrews there, that is what turning looks like. And what you're turning from are vain things. Vain is a very important word in the Greek language. And it's the word matthias. And I, I pulled a, out of my Lago software a definition of that particular Greek word. It's an important one. And it means, matthias means vain, empty, fruitless, aimless, and it goes on to say it is building houses on sand, chasing the wind, shooting at stars, pursuing one's own shadow. That's vain. I remember somebody had a cat, took a flashlight, and ran the beam of the flashlight up the wall. The cat thought that was something. The cat would chase it up the wall, fall off the wall. <laughs> Vain. You're never going to catch it. But the cat thought it was something to catch, and everybody thought that was pretty funny. But what Paul is saying is being religious when you don't know the true God is no better than that cat. Or chasing your own shadow, you never catch it. You're doing something, you're exerting energy, but you're not getting anywhere. You're spinning your wheels, you're stuck in a sand, building on sand. So empty, vain, fearless, and that's what Paul called their religion. And Paul was the one they wanted to sacrifice to. He could have gone along with it if he wasn't really a Christian and said, well, look at this, I can be a god. They're willing to do anything I say. They want to offer sacrifices to me. What would a TV evangelist do? Take up an offering. I really like gold and silver. How much do you got? (laughs) Do you want my favor? But he instead tore his garment, which was not easy to replace because he was so aghast that anybody would think a man could be a god. And he said, you need to turn from this vanity and futility and turn to the living God who created the heavens and the earth. The living God, not the fake gods of the pagans. And notice he preached that God is the creator. Now this word Matthias for vain is used six times in the New Testament. Let me show you some examples of when it's used. 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen. 1 Corinthians 15, 17. And I'll read that to you. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. Matthias, vain. Is worthless. You're still in your sins. In other words, the Christian gospel depends on something that God did in history in sending his son who predicted his own resurrection, death, burial, and resurrection. If that resurrection never happened and he stayed in a tomb and decayed, remember, thy holy one shall not undergo decay for the psalm, then the claims of Christ are false and Christianity is false. So Paul said, if Christ isn't really raised, the first fruits of them that sleep, your faith is worthless. The New Testament apostles never said to people, you should be religious because you'll just be a better person that way. I've heard people in a small town in Iowa where everybody went to church would tell their kids, don't neglect your religion. 
There are so few Catholics, and you just, when you get old, you get a family, you go back to Catholic Church. If you're Lutheran, you go to the Lutheran Church. If you're Methodist, you go to the Methodist Church. If you're Presbyterian, you go to the Presbyterian Church. You have your kids baptized, stick them into Sunday school. There, we did our religion. I'm being a good uh, citizen because I didn't neglect my religion. Paul did not look at life that way, did he? He said, if Christ isn't really raised, your faith is futile. All that religious activity is no better than that cat chasing the beam of light up the wall. It's nothing. You never catch it. The only way and reason for serving God is that you believe the truth, you come to Christ, and you do believe what God says about Christ and the future promises of God, that we have heaven, we have forgiveness of sins, we have the true word of God. So if you want to all turn, I want to show you the fact that repent and turn are synonymous, two ways of saying the same thing. Just in case you ever hear from one of those false teachers who claim that if you preach repentance, you're preaching salvation by works. Some of the most vicious attacks against me I have seen since I've been writing come from people who believe that. They anathematize me because I teach, re- preach repentance when I preach the gospel. And they say, therefore, I'm guilty of the Galatian heresy and I'm teaching salvation by works because I'm doing the thing that Jesus commissioned the apostles to do to teach repentance for forgiveness of sins. And they are vicious and very, very angry. They troll the Internet with search engines to find the word repent, and then they find out who had it in their article, and then the attack starts. I've been subject to that. The person they hate the most is John MacArthur. Because he wrote a book called The Gospel According to Jesus, and they just became vividly irate. Because they think faith is mental assent to facts. But here's something they don't tell you. Do you you have it yet? Acts 26.20, are you looking at it? Here we go. Paul is talking to a civil authority about what he did, how he met Christ, and how he was commissioned by Christ, and what he did about that commission. Acts 26.20, summarizing Paul's ministry, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also Jerusalem, and then throughout the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate of repentance. Now, who did Paul preach repentance and turning to? Jews, people in Jerusalem, people throughout Judea, even the Gentiles, which would be everybody else. And what did he preach to all those people? They should repent and turn to God. Now, what does that remind you of in Acts? Where have you heard Judea, Jerusalem, Judea? Eric's smiling. Go ahead. You can say, Eric. It's Acts 1-8. It's the programmatic verse of the entire book. So it lays out, that's how the book will follow. Remember, that's where they say, Jesus, are you now going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He says, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs that are set in my Father's hand, but you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And that ends up being the flow chart, as it were, of the entire book. And, and it's beautiful how you point that out, because this is at the end. It really forms like an inclusive. Right, but yet these followers of this Les Feldig and other people like yeah. him, they anathematize me because, but here it is in Acts 26. So you know what some of them do? Well, Paul hadn't got the gospel right yet. That happens later. And so then they're cutting out Acts and then they're cutting out more. Even some of Corinthians were saying, well, what about here? Well, not yet. It's so bad. And you couldn't have See, they don't get the narrative unity of Luke-Acts. This is a two-volume work. So Luke is a great writer. He's brilliant. His Greek is very advanced. 
Okay. And it's very believable that he was a physician, just for his being so erudite. And see, I got a big word out there, didn't I? And uh, he, he, he tells you what he's going to say. He says it, and he tells you what he so said. Jesus said, you should be my witness, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. And then showing that that happened, even through Paul, who was formerly an enemy of the gospel, here in this programmatic verse, Acts 26, 20, at the end, summing it up, that he did this first at Damascus, then Jerusalem, Judea, and even to the Gentiles. And what did he preach? Repentance and turning to God. You can't say it's only for the Jews. He preached it to everybody. And there you have synonymously parallel metanoeo, repent, and epistrepho, turn. There, saying the same thing two ways. You got it? So now you'll be armed when they attack you if you ever teach people to repent. Epistrepho. So we are men of the same nature, anthropoi, human beings. And so Paul speaks theologically, explains the nature of the true God. He preached the creator. I'm just reading from my own notes. The gods of the pagans cannot deliver anyone from sin or from God's wrath. They are vain and therefore worthless. Religion without Christ is vain. Futile, worthless. When I decided, I, in fact, I, I, you've heard my story so many times, but growing up in a liberal church, the pastor told me that the miracles the Bible said happened never happened, that God didn't expect us to believe the Bible. They were just religious stories to make us feel good about being good people. And that... The Christian religion was only about being good and trying to make the world a better place to live in. I was told that at 12 years old when it was time to join the church. And at 12, you don't have much choice. You have to get up, swear to you believe things that the pastor just told me he didn't believe. Isn't that an offense? The pastor to be ordained said he believed these things, and then he tells a 12-year-old, because I was a science student, I wanted to know, is this even believable? Well, you don't have to believe it. We don't believe it. So that's what he told me. I got, that was in the 60s, but in 1971, I was born of God by God's grace. And I knew that God did raise Jesus from the dead. And I knew that there was a hell. And I knew that I did need to repent. And I knew if I didn't repent, I would go to hell. And repent meant turning to Christ and believing in him and believing the truth, whatever he says, may he help me live for him. And that all happened on July 18th, 1971. Before the end of that year, I was back at the liberal church to talk to the pastor and tell him about how I came to Christ. And this was a slightly different, another, another pastor, but of the same ilk. And he said, well, I understand. When I was a young man back in 1910, this guy was a World War I era person. Uh, I, believed, I, I believed in that sort of stuff, but I found out it wasn't right. We just have to be good people, and the good Lord understands that everybody's good. That's what he told me when I told him I came to Christ. So I said, okay. I was polite to him, and I left and never went back. and went to a church that was preaching the gospel. But you see, dear ones, the whole world's full of structures called churches that don't believe any different than what the world believes. I'm not saying we're anything special. We don't even own a building. That's okay. But there's little groups all over the world that gather that do believe the truth. And they open the scriptures and they search the scriptures together and they pray for one another care about one another and preach the gospel and we realize that God saves people we don't we raise our children the best we can by God's grace but we're fallen sinners raising kids some of them serve God some don't 
That's in God's hands. We don't create a system that makes them dependent on our religion. We teach them and leave whether they serve God or not between them and God. And if they come to God, you won't get them out of the church. So if not, we're, we, we believe in common grace. That's going to be my next topic in Sunday school. And that we love our kids and we still pray for them. And we don't know who the elect are. We don't know who's going to get saved. And we don't know when. So we don't give up hope. So we need to distinguish what we believe from the pagans around us. Jeremiah, uh, here's a verse for someone to look up. Um, who wants to be a reader? Jeremiah 10, 11. Jeremiah 10, 11. Anybody who finds it, wants to read, raise your hand, and Carly will get you the mic. Jeremiah 10 and verse 11. It's one that you probably got to want to underline if you do underline your Bible. Jeremiah 10, 11. Okay, Rich, go for it. Thus you shall say to them, the gods that have not made the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. Amen. I love that verse. The gods who didn't make the heavens and earth are going to perish from them. That's what God thinks of false gods. How do you know you have the right God? Well, you need to know the one that created the heavens and the earth. The God of the Bible. False gods didn't create they're going to be judged just like everything else. There will be a judgment. Remember that verse, Jeremiah 10, 11. I'll read this one, Jeremiah 32, 17, to show you how important it is to preach the creator. The creator. Jeremiah 32, 17. By the way, I first came to believe in God from evidence in science, studying uh, biochemistry. I came to be a theist, and I became, that was three months before I was born again. But I came to believe in God, studying biochemistry, the heme, particularly the heme molecule. The evidence points that there's a creator. Okay, Jeremiah 32, 17, let me read that. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. And so that God created is so important. The prologue of John, John 1, 1 through 18. Hebrews, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Again and again, at key places in the Bible, God is proclaimed to be the creator. And that needs to be part of our preaching so that we can combat panentheism. Some who is it? Somebody called it pan everythingism. <laughs> God is in everything. Well, here's the problem with that, or with just stark pantheism. The, this is the worldview that's coming in. I wrote that article about Enneagram, panentheistic religion. It's not from God, but it's coming into Bible colleges. Is that if God's in everything, then God's part of the problem. There's no one transcendent to the universe with all its problems. And so they're claiming that God, that's where evolution is going on. Though everything is social, spiritual, and biological evolution are all tied into one and God's in everything. It's all evolving into some hopeful future. And here the Christians come and say, no, God created the world out of nothing. History is linear, not cyclical. It begins with creation and ends with judgment. And right now we're heading toward judgment. The transcendent God of the Bible is going to bring judgment. He's not going to judge himself. That's what it said in the passage Rich read. The gods that are not made to heaven and the earth shall perish. There's a transcendent judge. And we need to be right with him through the blood atonement. And so we preach it again and again to combat the panentheism that our kids are learning when they go to school, when they even in churches, in, in so-called Christian universities. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And they're getting sucked into it, 
and we at least need them to know the difference. Because if God didn't create the world out of nothing, you're talking about God, you're talking about someone different than the apostles preached. And some of you doubtlessly have run into this panentheism. I know I have. And our daughter Jessica runs into it all the time as she takes care of the Facebook and all that for CIC, always debating the panentheists. Yes. You know, one category I think Christians have a difficult time with regarding panentheism or pantheism is distinguishing that in God's omnipresence. Yes, good point. So, for example, the Bible clearly teaches that God is everywhere. So, for example, in Psalm 119, remember David says, if I ascend into the heavens, you are there. Where Mm -hmm. can I flee from your presence? The obvious answer is nowhere. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I ascend to the heavens, you're, you're there. So God is everywhere. But saying that God is omnipresent everywhere doesn't mean he's the table. He's here, but he's not the room. He's not the table. He's not the tree. He's not the chair. But he's everywhere. And that's the distinguishing thing that we have to make in our culture. Bob, explain the one-ism yeah. versus the two-ism. Yeah, I think that Peter is Jones, it, I was out in, in, in Candido. I was out in California uh, at a think tank, and it was very fruitful one I was part of in about 10 years ago and I met this Peter Jones and, and, and some Christian scholars and he talks about oneism and twoism as the two religions in the world. Oneism is the God of the Bible I mean twoism is the God of the Bible I got that totally backwards twoism, the creator to creation and oneism is what everybody else believes so that whether you have polytheistic gods literal pantheism, God is everything, or panentheism, God is in everything, or the creation is all there is, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die, sort of thing. You don't have the two-ism of the Bible. That's what Peter Jones said. He's very effective at preaching that to kids on universities. So we need to do that. Now let me make one more statement then about what Eric was just talking about. Beware category shifts. That's how Liberals and people who are deceived in various ways <clears throat> confuse people. They shift categories. Okay? Um, to the Trinitarian transcendent God of the Bible is in regard to, if we want to use the term geography, he's omnipresent. As we conceive of space, the whole universe, God is everywhere. Now that's a statement about space and geography. But when they say God is in everything, they've shifted the category to rather than a spatial category, an ontological category. Okay, get that straight. It's very important. Ontology is the study of being. Okay? So when you're saying God in his essential nature, his being is in the creation, is part of the processes of the creation, they're not talking about space anymore. They're talking about being. They shifted to what you're talking about. And so you're, you're going like this. And they're claiming such statements prove their point, but the statements aren't about ontology. They're about space. And that God isn't confined to some geographical territory like these gods were. That's true. But he's not part of the fallen creation in the sense of subject to the decay of the entire creation. Now, you might ask why you go through all that technical stuff in church. I'll tell you why. We've got to quit abandoning scholarship to the liberals. Evangelicalism got enamored with an anti-scholastic bias all the way back to the 50s. Oh, the liberals, they're the ones that have all the degrees and study books. That's what makes them liberal. So we're just going to be me and my Bible and me and Jesus. That's all I need. And I do believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. But I believe that in the Scripture, we're taught to address the issues on the level they need to be addressed. And ignorance isn't bliss. 
we can have practical ignorance of sin because we don't want to know how evil evil is. But we want to be able to go to the battleground as Paul did and do battle face to face with whoever it is and not have to be embarrassed that we didn't do our study. So we need to fight the anti-scholastic bias, deal with the issues, don't dumb anything down, and not allow the pagan culture to dictate how we believe and what church means because it has to be determined by the Bible. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your goodness and kindness and grace. Thank you for saving Saul of Tarsus and sending him to preach these things so that we could learn. And may we be strong in our generation and stand for the truth of the gospel. Thank you who created all things. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Eric will be preaching to us upstairs. Thank you.